Today is Thursday, January 12, 2023. It's day 734 of the J6 political hostage crisis. I'm Mel Holly, and this is your Justice in Jeopardy update. Hey everybody! Thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited about this interview tonight. Uh, it's it's a it's a big one, and I've been trying to get uh, Sean Witzman to give me an interview for a long time. He had sentencing today, and uh, so I I grabbed him right after sentencing, and uh, we chatted for about an hour. And his his story is is quite a doozy, <laughs> but I think you're going to enjoy this. So grab your popcorn and uh, enjoy the show. So we're joined today by Sean Witzman, who just finished his sentencing hearing. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me, Mel. So uh, why don't you why don't you start out and give a little background about who you are for those uh, who don't know you, don't know about your case? That's kind of one of those things. Where do you want to start? How much time do we have? Um, for years and years and years, I was a I was a pretty successful plumbing contractor, and then in 2018, I started writing satire. Um, it was a publication in Farmington, New Mexico called Farmington Tribune. And in that publication, I would lampoon a variety of issues, uh, public figures, local gossip. Um, it was a lot of fun. A lot of the stories hit viral status. I learned a lot about how people interpret news in general. Um, and especially when it comes to fake news and what makes them believe that a story is real. When people would say that those stories were fake, uh, I would respond to them. I say, no, no, this has been independently verified by the Armenian Council for Truth and Journalism. So it was kind of this ongoing joke with it for some time. And then in 2019, after making these jokes for over a year, I felt like things were really taken off. I felt like there was a chance to do something more than just satire. And so to that end, the first trip I took abroad was to Armenia to go. And jokingly at the time, although years later, it seems like less of a joke, but I went to go find the original founding of the Council for Truth and Journalism, which I had written a story about and said that Noah had founded it immediately after the ark landed. So there was this whole story about that. And it was, it was very interesting, you know, to go over there. And I learned a lot about the world and I've, I've spoken about that. Some, I do plan to be writing about it in the future. So I'll just kind of leave that as a teaser. Maybe. Um, the next trip I took was to the United Kingdom, went over there for the better part of three weeks, I believe it was and traveled the country continued to work on this idea of doing almost like reverse Borat documentaries that highlighted American ignorance. So the idea was being that we go to different countries and we are idiots and we act like Americans who think that everything is awesome and we're the best and yada, yada, yada. And all, basically all the stereotypes that people abroad say about Americans. So we were going to play that up. Um, went well. I, I felt like we were really working on something. Came back to the United States um, in February. And then, of course, you know, the world shut down, which really put a kink into what I wanted to do next, which was I had planned to go to Ukraine in the Donbass region because I wanted to go and see what was going on over there for myself. Well, that didn't happen. So I got kind of wrangled in. We were doing a podcast on a nightly basis, you know, speaking to a lot of different people. And it started off very, very satirical. So we would look at, 
you know, news issues globally or locally. And I had a, a, a wide network of friends from across the globe. So we, we would bring them on as guests to try to get, you know, the, straight from the horse's mouth, what was going on in a lot of these places. When the riots and the protests in 2020 started kicking off, uh, it just was natural that we ended up covering that. Obviously, we had a sister publication called Denver Tribune that was out of Denver. And so we were doing a lot of live stream coverage of that. I ended up employing a pretty good kid named Dylan Beresford, who, you know, he's a leftist, but we agreed that, you know, there needed to be live stream journalism for these events. Um, so he did a lot of coverage of that there. He went on to cover things in Portland. Um, and, and so it was, it was great. He actually, a lot of his footage was featured in the New York Times. So it was really cool to see him succeed with what he was doing. And I felt like we had a very good understanding of what was going on in the country as a result of being so intimately involved with covering those protests and riots. And then we all saw what happened with the election. Um, and I knew that they were planning to do the Million MAGA March. So I took it upon myself at that point that I was going to go and do my best to cover that story on the ground. So I went to DC, I believe it was November 14th of 2020 and I was in, in the days surrounding that date. Um, and then late at night, it was actually this situation where I was hanging out and I was drinking beers with Owen Schroyer and, and we ran out of beer. Uh, we were hanging out in front of the JW Marriott. So I told him, I said, no worries. I said, I got a bottle of tequila back at my hotel room, which was North on 14th street there for those of you that know DC. And so I took off walking back to my hotel. Well, along the way, I encountered a police line who was directing everybody into BLM Plaza, which is Lafayette Square, just north of the White House, which was interesting in the whole scope of things. But uh, it got pretty, pretty spicy that evening. There was a lot of people tearing down signs and altercations with BLM activists and, and even background to that was there were people attacking Trump supporters on their way back to their hotels. We're talking about families with kids. And, you know, there were, there were, you know, BLM or Antifa activists burning things in the middle of Freedom Plaza while DC Metro formed a perimeter around them to protect them while they did this. So this was all stuff that I saw and covered with my own eyes. Anyways, so back to uh, BLM Plaza, I, uh, that was where I really kind of first encountered proud boys. And I thought there was a story there because what I was seeing was not really what the media had said about them. I didn't know anything about them. So I thought that that was an interesting story. I wound up following that story to Atlanta. I believe it was the next weekend. And then I actually went out to Phoenix while Giuliani was presenting evidence of the election issues. We'll try not to get banned the election issues um, to the Arizona state legislature. It was, was that the, uh, the famous Melissa uh, Carone? No, no, she wasn't there. There was others there. And actually, because I couldn't even get in, they, they had run out of tickets or whatever to actually get in and cover it. So incidentally, I, I wound up spending some time in the lobby, just, you know, having a drink and listening to people, which you hear a lot of interesting things when people think you're not listening. I'll leave it at that. Ali Alexander was there, Michelle Malkin. A lot of people were having conversations in that lobby. Um, 
you know, also of note there was the interaction between Baked Alaska and Ray Epps, which I captured on my live stream, where uh, Baked Alaska was kind of doing his pretty typical inflammatory uh, rhetoric to someone that was there. And Ray Epps actually said, no, this is America. Everyone's allowed to speak. And I, and I said, you know, I turned to Ray Epps and I record him at the time and I go, I, you know, I like that guy. I, I can get him on board with that. There's only one way to God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. And you hear with, you hear with your Jewish subversion, you don't want you here. So skedaddle, scram. Amen. Yeah. I mean, everybody's welcome. It's a free speech zone. So yes, we're Americans, and we're all. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I like Trump that guy. Trump is the king of America. I like that guy. But God is the king. So, just a weird interaction that occurred months, months before the Fed, Fed, Fed business. Um, you know, covered it. Continued to cover it. Went back to D.C. on the twelfth. Um, I was there when the Black Lives Matter banner was burned. I was there when the stabbing occurred out in front of uh, uh, Hotel Harrington. Uh, I saw multiple altercations there, stabbings, fights, altercations between Proud Boys and police. I ate a lot, of, you know, well, I don't know about a lot comparatively, but a fair amount of pepper spray in the process of standing between protesters and police and, and anybody who's live stream knows how that goes. So, you know, this, this kind of had an eventuality to it. I returned home and then we all knew what was going on or what was supposed to go on on January 6th was that there was some sort of a protest scheduled. Nobody really knew how it would turn out. I did not have a good feeling about any of it. Um, you know, and, and now as I've discussed openly in court at this point, I did communicate my concerns about, you know, the growing potential for violent conflict. Uh, I did. I did communicate communicate those concerns to friends of mine in the intelligence community. You know, you essentially kick it up and you say, "This is what I'm seeing on the ground. You guys probably ought to be aware of this." Um, it's my opinion that a lot of those warnings went unheeded, and I think they went unheeded purposely. And I think we'll see that the more information that comes out over the, the next months and probably years. But I, I was not excited about going to D.C. on the 6th. There, was, there wasn't a part of me that was like exuberant about it. I was very concerned. I remember you know, sitting there and watching movies with my boys before I left um, because I was, I was very aware of the potential for violence. In, and I knew that I tended to be right in the middle of it, usually wearing a, you know, wearing a sweatshirt and just waiting to get you know, cranged in the head or stabbed or whatever as a journalist. So, you know, again, I was not excited about going. Um, went to DC, obviously on the fifth, there was speeches in Freedom Plaza all day long um, and things were relatively okay. But again, I wasn't seeing a lot of what was going on with the crowd because I was pretty much packed right up to the front, you know, where the speakers were. So I covered a lot of the speakers that, that day and evening as the sleet came down on me. It was pretty miserable. And I eventually left. I went back to my hotel room that evening. I did my normal nightly podcast, you know, the Armenian Council for Truth and Journalism. And then I went back out on the street after that. And that's when I kind of went over to BLM Plaza where people were gathered. 
you know, the infamous uh, Ray Epps, you know, fed scene, which I swear the more we look at it, the more we can just call them scenes in a movie. Um, but, you know, there was, there was a situation there, obviously, where Bobby Pickles was selling Enrique Tario did nothing wrong shirts because Enrique Tario had been arrested two days before um, for the burning of the Black Lives Matter banner. And so I bought one of those t-shirts. Brendan Gutenschwager actually took a picture of me holding it up in front of BLM Plaza. And that one probably would have gotten a lot more attention as, a, as an image that people could use. Uh, but then, of course, we saw what happened on the 6th. I got up in the morning. Uh, I was supposed to meet with somebody to get VIP passes to see Trump speak. That person uh, reportedly had too much to drink the night before, and so they did not get up. And uh, so I just continued walking through the crowd and attempting to do what I could at the Washington Monument. And then, uh, you know, around, I, I can't remember the times exactly offhand anymore, but it was before Trump was done speaking, immediately after he said that he was going to walk down to the Capitol, that I said, okay, I think I see what's going on. And I knew that there were planned protests at the Capitol for later that day. So I walked to the Capitol. Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was about the time that I walked to the Capitol right after I said that as well. I, I arrived there about a few minutes after one, I believe. You know, that it was what it was. When I got there, obviously those initial barricades had already been taken down. Um, so I wasn't aware of any of that. Interestingly enough, you know, the judge said, you know, you would have seen signs. And frankly, I never saw a sign about a restricted area until I'd left the building. And then I saw one and I remember taking a picture of it and going, oh, that's ironic. Um, but, you know, when I got to the Capitol, things were already popping off. And the thing is, is that they may disparage that and they'll be like, well, you got involved when you knew it was already violent. But again, for months ahead of that, when there was violence, I would run to the middle of it to cover it. So it was not anything out of the ordinary for me. I just said, you know, really, holy crap, this is popping off. I got to get to the front and see what's going on. So that's what I did. And I ended up on the, on the, uh, near the Northwest stairs, where if people who know some of the material, well, you had, you know, certain protesters moving up a staircase there. Um, and so I was standing kind of down in the grass area. And at some point, that's when Derek Vargo got pushed off the stairs. Now, I didn't see it with my eyes. As I recall, because I was live streaming, and, and just so everyone knows, you know, my live stream never uploaded. So even though I was able to stream live, it never uploaded. So all of that video is lost. Don't know where it is. It's probably on a server in Germany. Um, but, but so that's what was going on. I had my camera pointed. I heard some screaming. I turned around and Derek Varga was pretty much right on the ground, right off to my right hand. And he looked like he was dead. He was not responsive. He was not moving. And it was just like, what has just happened here? And then the crowd started getting really, really volatile at that point. They were very upset. Um, and, and things just continued to escalate. There was tear gas being thrown into the crowd just like crazy. The cops were scared. that were on the grass. Like, they didn't know what to do. You could tell they weren't getting clear direction as to what they should do, which we know that from looking at the Inspector General's report, that there was, there was a complete breakdown in the communication and the chain of command within Capitol Police and other institutions that day. And, and so on the ground, I'm seeing this in real time. 
at some point they decided that they were just going to stand down. And so I ended up walking up the stairs, you know, kind of with everybody else. And I remember saying on my live stream, I said to everybody, I said, well, I guess this is what's going on, you know, and I get to the top and, and the inauguration stage was right there. So I, I went up the stairs to the top of the inauguration stage to get a shot looking to the West towards the Washington monument. And the crowd was massive. You know, you try to get that in frame, a police officer, she came over and she said, you need to get right down, down right now. Yes, ma'am. Which becomes a common theme that anytime a police officer gave me a lawful order, I complied. And that was admitted to today in court. Um, so I, I got down off the stairs, went over near the Senate wing and the door where the initial breach occurred. I didn't see the initial breach, um, but I could hear some sort of commotion over there. It kind of was what it was. And, and then I saw like some people go in that way, but very quickly. And I believe it's time stamped in the discovery, which nobody's uh, seen this video publicly, or I, I can't remember exactly how that works. But, the, but in the, in the timestamp video, it was right around um, 2.13, I think is when they say the breach occurred. And then the doors that I was standing right next to opened from the inside at 2.15. People started to go in there. So I went in with them. I continued recording. Uh, I encountered a Capitol Police officer, a female Capitol Police officer who was, you know, she was definitely doing her best to um, de-escalate the situation. She was very kind. And she was, she was calmly telling people that they needed to leave that area. I explained to her, I'm a journalist. You know, I need to see what's going on. She said, no, I understand all that. She said, but you need to go ahead and go back the way you came and, and, and just please do that. I said, I said, yes, ma'am. So I complied. And it was funny where there was another officer who then kind of, you know, escorted me out, not violently or anything, but he definitely wanted me to know that it was time to go. And, and so I remember saying to him, thanks for not kicking my ass. Um, <laughs> so I get back out, you know, onto that upper West Terrace area. And by that time, people were just streaming into the building. And so the government in their, in their uh, memorandum and all of their stuff, they've ignored that first entry completely. They've just completely ignored it for the government. It was like, they never wanted to talk about it, even though I told the FBI that that's what happened. They've ignored it the entire time, just like so many other things that I told them that they've admitted are truthful statements. And, you know, one of these days, we'll figure out why that is. And I'm starting to have a really good hunch. Uh, but so I went in the other doors. That's what they had me clocked out. I think it was 2.19 p.m. And I went in there, uh, immediately turned to the south or to the right as I go through the doors. And I went into the, uh, the crypt area that's right below the rotunda. So it's this room with a lot of pillars. I think, you know, some people who are familiar with the material don't, don't recognize that. Interestingly enough, there was, there was somewhat of a line that had built there. So I once again, put myself between protesters and police. Uh, Zachary Allen, who many people know, he was being his, his typical self and he was instigating. Uh, he was there and he was yelling at police he was, he was trying to cause a problem. And then, you know, I, I, I remember turning to him and I told him, I said, I said, you need to shut the fuck. You know, yeah. Yeah. I guess we can censor that later maybe, but <laughs> shut the front door. And, uh, did you, and, did you know, did you know Zachary alum, uh, previously? No, not at all. All I saw was some idiot, frankly, 
that was causing problems that didn't need to exist in a very tense situation. So it's like, again, I'm, I'm looking at the whole thing going on and I'm just throughout all of it. I was just terrified that you were going to have a situation where either a cop or, you know, potentially someone who brought a gun, you know, and I know they haven't found much of that (laughs) to speak of in all this, but you know, who knows? And you're in this situation and it's like, if somebody shoots somebody, this thing's going to turn into a bloodbath. That's what was in my mind. Um, so it, it was obviously not okay. And then a push came from the crowd from behind, you know, there was a police officer in front of me that got knocked over. I remember vaguely picking him up and helping him up, getting him to his feet. So he didn't get trampled. And then again, the police just kind of stood down. <laughs> and so, you know, I moved through that area and then there's a, there's a hallway immediately after if, as you go South through the crypt, there's a hallway that then turns to the West. And so some people had gone down that hallway. I was down that hallway with them. And this really became central to the government's prosecution of me where we were in the hallway, tense situation. Everything's crazy. The the cops were not saying anything. They were not issuing any commands. They were not telling anybody what to do. They were just kind of standing there, you know, and I said, brother, stand with us. Um, I, I don't, you know, and I that, that, myself that was brought up in your, and that was brought up in your sentencing hearing. Yeah, that is central to their prosecution. And they basically said that I was aligning with the rioters, which I don't think is really true because again, I didn't want anything that happened that day to happen, but, but I'm in this weird situation where again, as a, as a journalist, as someone who's dealt with government corruption, as someone who's dealt with corrupt police as someone who watched the protests and some of them very legitimate, I think in the summer of 2020 that dealt with police brutality, you know, I think that this divide between people and police is something that is, has been unhealthy all the way around. So I don't know, you know, meaning is difficult to interpret even for me, but, you know, I can say in retrospect that as an, as a journalist, I should have stuck more to objectivity in that moment. And I, and I wish I had, because Really, that's what opened me up for prosecution. That's really what was central to them to prosecute me. Um, and I, you know, I understand that it was a that it was a failure in objectivity on my part, especially considering how tense it was. But you know, it's it's hard to say. The problem is, is that there's so many journalists that say so many things and they get away with it, you know, because they take the opinion that the election was perfectly fair. That's, yeah, that's and, really and that's the thing. That's the thing this. that really bothered me listening to your to your sentencing hearing is is that they they really the judge really focused on that um, that uh, there was you know you're not allowed to be biased as a journalist and and that's all we see twenty four seven from the other side. It's impossible to be a journalist without bias. It's that's just it's absurd. You know, we saw years of that with journalists who go around and they say, "Oh, I'm unbiased." No, you're not, and we see your bias all the time. Whereas I've always taken the attitude that I would rather be upfront and open about my different biases and then try to explain how those may relate to any objective reality or truth that I cover. So that's, that's still the way I, I approach it. That's my attitude towards journalism is that you cannot get rid of your, your, your biases. You're going to have those as a human being. And, and as a journalist who covers different stories, of course, you're going to start forming opinions of what you're seeing and what you're covering. And for me, that was very much a part of it because I, you know, again, I'm not a, I'm not like a MAGA guy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a conservative. 
but I believe in free speech and expression and the constitution. So this has all been very difficult for me. Um, you know, just like on a personal internal level. Well, and he, um, even, he even brought that up. He even mentioned, you know, that you said that, that you believed in the, in the constitution as if that was a, a negative thing. I, I don't know. I may have not heard it that way, or maybe I'm just putting rose colored glasses on through all of it. You know, it's like, it's almost like one of those where I would like to go back and, and really think about what I said, because it was all off the cuff there anyways. I mean, when it, when it comes down to a lot of my true feelings about everything that was in the allocution statements that I sent to him that were sent back in November, you know, that really, I think gave him a full picture of who I am as a person. And that was the best shot I ever had of trying to explain that. But I am a little bit insulted by this idea that I'm not a journalist because there's a documented history of it. And frankly, it, it comes down to me saying things that the, the ruling regime and power structure doesn't like. And I can't do anything about that. If I see objective truth and you don't like it, well, you know, deal with it. Uh, you know, find do, do different you think, facts. Do you think the judge actually read all, what, 79 pages of your... Yeah, uh, I do. Yeah, I do. Do you? I do. Uh, you know, I have no doubts. I think, you know, and I think we saw that. I, I don't have any ill will against Judge Hogan. I just think that, like the other judges in D.C., is that he continues to be really uninformed or misinformed. I mean, they're sitting there basically saying, like, I'm some sort of conspiracy theorist. But I'm not. You know, I'm very respected in some very intelligent circles and, and it, I'm not crazy. I do look at objective facts, you know, granted, there's always going to be some speculation involved, but I think we saw that even when they talked about the murders, they just continue to be misinformed. And it's because of, you know, like the prosecution in this case, where they just ignore facts. I had given them facts that they could easily verify, but they've chosen not to. They're excluding information and evidence from the public. They're excluding discovery materials from defendants. And I didn't get a real good chance to get into that, but it's like they've deleted all sorts of things that could have been considered exculpatory in my case. You know, my did, attorney. Did Hogan, give people, you, did Hogan outline any, um, any things that, that were not allowed to be brought up? No, no, not at all. I mean, in allocution, you're pretty much allowed to speak about anything but it's like even even in my case it's like i could have kicked and screamed and and really made a scene but you only have so much time to prepare you only have so much time to present materials he was gracious enough to allow the amended sentencing memorandum to be submitted so there's a lot of things that go into that and and i didn't feel as though in my particular case it was necessary to belabor some of the larger issues i know that when the proud boys trial as it goes forward right now we're going to see some pretty major things. And it's going to be interesting to watch how the government responds and how they try to continue to suppress evidence because the department of justice is suppressing evidence. 100% unequivocally they are. And, and it's a bad situation. They've done it through their suppression of social media, through their banning of accounts and everything else. There are actors within the department of justice that are acting against the constitution and it's unacceptable. It has to be dealt with. You know, so whether or not I was able to argue that an allocution statement, you know, I did the best I could based off the information I had back in November 1st, which was mainly what was based off of an intercept article 
that started to dig into the improper relationship between the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, and Facebook. You know, so I know there's a relationship there. I know that if we can ever subpoena those documents, it's not going to look good for any of them, just like we've seen through the Twitter files. So that's just one aspect of the entire thing where, again, evidence is being suppressed. It's being hidden from the public, no different than the Hunter Biden laptop in the first place. So, you know, that's kind of more of that. Okay, well, um, let's talk about your actual sentencing. Um, tell us tell us what you were, you were sentenced to first. Uh, as I understand the bullet points was I was given two years of probation, seven days incarceration in a as yet to be determined local facility, um, a $500 restitution payment to the architect of the Capitol, $10 uh, fee to the clerk and 60 hours of community service. And that, that seems to be less than what you expected, right? Yeah, it, it, for me, again, it is what it is. Uh, my concern was less the sentencing. I knew what potentially I could be looking at, which was up to six months. Uh, I knew what the government wanted, which was 30 days. They got everything they wanted except for one year of probation. And, you know, I guess it's uh, 23 days more of incarceration. So, again, I, my concern through all this has never been what they sentenced me with. I, I knew what it was. And, and I don't, you know, it's like when I tell the judge that I've learned a lot during the last two years, I'm being very sincere there. And I, and I don't want to sound like I don't have more to learn in life or that I can't learn from a seven-day period of incarceration. But to me, that's just part of it. I'm not malicious or angry or bitter over any of it. I just view it as just, it's, it's just something that needs to be taken care of. You know, I, I have a tendency to kind of compare everything to a ship on the ocean because of my grandfather. And so, you know, my attitude is, is that the ship's still okay. We can bend a little bit as long as it doesn't break and we're even keel and we're on course. Yeah. Well, I am sure that you're, you're feeling some relief at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of that where I'm, I'm just glad I'm to this point. I know the idea of, you know, potential for appeal was brought up. Uh, Judge Hogan, you know, he opened up those doors, obviously, if you talk about ineffective counsel and things like that, that opens up some space for appeal. But as of right now, even with everything that has been done to me that I believe was very wrong, uh, there was definitely communications that suggested that there was collusion between the Department of Justice and my old attorney. Um, but I don't feel as though that's necessarily anything I need to pursue because I feel like that's just going to hold me back. And honestly, my good buddy, JD Rivera, he's doing eight months now. And essentially he did the same things as me. He was there and he documented and he took his to trial and he was convicted of all four misdemeanors. They gave him an eight month prison sentence for that. And so I'm, you know, to me, my time and my energy at this point, is much better spent trying to get guys like him out. Yeah, I think I, I think though it is important to expose um, the the collusion that was going on between the DOJ and and a lot of these uh, public pretenders. Yeah, and I I intend to do that. I do have FOIA requests put in that have been approved. Um, so yeah, uh, we're going to dig in. We're going to find out everything that went on between attorneys, the Department of Justice, 
Facebook, Twitter, all of them. We're going to figure all of it out. Uh, you know, I have, again, as was said in court, I, I enjoy a very good relationship with some very good people within the intelligence community. Something that I'll tell the American people is, is there's a lot of people who are on your side, especially J6ers. You know, there's a lot of people who are looking for ways to help defend you. And so that's, that's what I intend to do in any capacity I can as a journalist is that if I, you know, if I get a tip on a story or something that I can put out to the public, that's what I'm going to do. And there's a lot that needs to be put out into the public view. And I think we're going to see a lot and hopefully in this Proud Boys trial. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know that um, in, the, in the end, you ended up with uh, John Pierce as your attorney who represented you today in the sentencing hearing. Yeah. Um, tell us about John Pierce. So John Pierce, he, he was great. Um, he came in very late in the entire thing. And, you know, working with his team and what they were able to put together as far as a sentencing memorandum that really represented my positions well. Again, it could have been a lot more voluminous. We could have gone down every rabbit hole in the world and tried to present that. But I think given the situation and everything else, it was, it was the best that could be done. And, and I think it's beautifully written, the sentencing memorandum. I think it hits on all of the points that needed to be hit on. And again, it represented me adequately. So I can't thank John Pierce enough for you know, helping take my case on. And he did so. And he did so again. Everybody should know this really out of the goodness of his heart, because I, I didn't have any money to contribute at the time. You know, you put out a give, send, go, and you hope that people contribute and, you know, you try to pay as you go. And I was able to get him a little bit of money, but it's nowhere near the time that's been put in. So, you know, I can't thank him enough. You know, the entire team at John Pierce, you know, nclu.com, that they, they were great. They've treated me great. I had a great conversation with them when I was done with court today. And, and I really look forward to working with them more in the future to help them in any capacity I can for all these guys that are having their constitutional rights trampled. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. And he's got a great team. Um, and I'm really glad that, that he's doing what he's doing. He's been picking up cases left and right for the J6ers. And, uh, you know, he's, He's not like uh, some of the others we've seen who are all about the money. So it's, uh, it's, it's great work. Well, yeah. And it's, and it's one of those things where I understand, and he's even admitted that you know, like he's got a reputation in DC now where they kind of look at all, oh, you've got another J six or well, nobody else is standing up for these guys. You know, where's the ACLU, you know, as, as a, as a kid that, you know, used to have blue hair and wear the spikes and punk rock, and you know, fight authority. And all that stuff. And yeah, ACLU, constitutional rights. They're nowhere to be found. You know, they're too busy trying to find ways to, to make excuses to uh, cut kids' genitals off. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've seen the same. I mean, we can't find anybody to, to fight for the, for the human rights, the civil rights of, of the guys who are detained. Um, where as uh, you know, as we, as we've of course said many, many times, the guys down in, in Gitmo um, have more rights and uh, we can't get any of these NGOs who, who normally, you know, look out for, for these rights to, to even, you know, pick up the phone. Yeah. They're not interested. Uh, they've been paid off. They've been captured. I think that we'll see a lot of that, you know, it's, it's going to come out. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to let everybody know the evidence is there. The evidence is there. Whether you want to talk about some of the recent rulings on elections or anything else, it's well known that a lot of these people are blackmailed or they're extorted or they're under threat. This country is very corrupt. Yeah, very well, I'm, corrupt. I'm glad that they're, they're setting up this committee to, uh, you know, investigate the weaponization of the federal yeah. government people you know you know, you, you know me mel you know me i've got about as much faith in republicans as i do in you know a chihuahua walking down the street to take care of that but uh <laughs> yeah. but you know look i mean they, they can try and i certainly hope they do it the correct way but you know it was like i talked about with the judge the problem is is that i still see just more partisanship and as long as it's all about partisanship i don't see really getting to the answers because the republicans are they're going to look out for their own interests just like the Democrats do, you know, there's, there's piles of corruption in the Republican party, you know, and it's going to have to be addressed one way or the other. So, you know, hopefully we can save the Republic, uh, you know, before all of that stuff comes to a head and just dissolves the entire thing. And, and we balkanize and things get really dark from there. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we don't get to that point. Well, Sean, thank you so much uh, for, for giving me the uh, first interview post-sentencing and the first interview I've had of you. <laughs> You're very welcome. You're very but, uh, welcome. And I don't yeah. want, and I don't want to leave everybody, you know, with, you know, the black pills or whatever. So, you know, definitely some words of encouragement, which are to keep speaking out, exercise your first amendment. There were a lot of people there who may or may not have been, you know, committing crimes and we'll have to leave that to the courts to adjudicate and everything else. But in the end, you have to exercise that first amendment and you have to be willing to die to do it. So, you know, that's what it is. Peaceful, speaking out and not giving in. You've just been an amazing journalist for a long time and uh, highly respect you. Thanks, Mel. You too. Thanks, John. Thanks. Uh, so uh, do you have a gives and go that um, people can support you so that you can, uh, you know, continue to do what you're doing and um, maybe even throw some money at your attorney or, or just uh, get by and get back on your feet? Yeah, I do. People can find that at Witzman Family Fund. Um, okay. So Gibson, go Witzman Family Fund, and you should be able to find me. So, I mean, every dollar is appreciated. Uh, you know, maybe one of these days I'll catch up with everything that I've put out. Return on investment in a media company is difficult, yeah. <laughs> especially, especially when you've got legal fees. So, no, every bit of help is appreciated. I wouldn't have been here without all the people that have contributed. So... I do appreciate you, you know, giving me a chance to share that, Mel. Well, thank you so much, Sean. You take care. Yes, ma'am. Hey, Jan6 family and supporters. Nicole Reffitt here. Been in the courtroom all day covering Proud Boys. Um, a lot going on in the courthouse. Uh, Proud Boys trial, lots of drama going on in there today. Uh, trying to remove Dan Hall and Norman Pettis uh, from Joe Biggs' uh, Council, the government absolutely does not not want Norm on the case. Uh, you know, so those arguments will happen in the morning. Opening arguments should happen tomorrow afternoon. Big O Barnett, big personality in there, has a lot going on for him. Uh, his trial is still going on. Uh, you know, Oath Keepers, it's now over in the defense side. And, uh, you know, just a quick update today. Tomorrow I'll have more with the opening of Proud Boys. 
Um, you know, we have a couple of sentencings going on this at the end of this week, and I'll get y'all all the information that I can. Um, I'm just late for the vigil, you guys, so I've got to run. Love y'all. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us, you guys. Uh, we will be back here tomorrow. Don't forget, you can tune into the live stream of the DC Gulag Vigil, and that happens every night from 7 to about 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And we are out there singing and getting calls from the guys um, inside the D.C. Gulag and other jails around the country, as well as singing the national anthem with them at 9 p.m., which they do every night from their cells. And don't forget, you can hashtag Sing for Freedom along with them every night and post your videos across social media. You can also check out the website for Sing for Freedom, and that is www.singforfreedom.us as in United States. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And don't forget to always be bold and speak the truth. If you'd like to help us support J6 families as they're released from jails and prisons, please check out the Elijah Fund. You can find that on our website, a4justice.org slash T-E-F. Americans for Justice, Inc. is a nonpartisan alliance that vigorously defends the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and due process across our great nation, which are pivotal to preserving life, liberty, and freedom for all. Too long we have played defense and are losing on all battlefronts through divided efforts. The root problem of election integrity, medical freedom, political prisoners, southern border crisis, CPS and APS and others is one common thing, a direct assault on the U.S. Constitution and due process. Americans for Justice is a nonprofit organization with local chapters in all 50 states, working with lawyers, legal scholars, and organizations to actively fight government overreach at all levels. Unite with us in the fight for our J6 political hostages and whatever else due process rights are violated. We ask for your support in this vital mission through a one-time donation or an ongoing membership. Go to the letter A, the number 4, justice.org.